I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. Today, we're talking about the protests that have surged across the country and the rest of the world in the wake of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. We have three guests. We're talking with Kimberly Williams Crenshaw about the connection between police killing of Black Americans and pandemic deaths in Black communities. We're talking with Osita Wanevu about how protests can shape policy. And we're talking with Patrick Blanchfield about how police use language to obscure the violence they commit. This is the politics of everything. We're talking first with Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, the co-founder of the African American Policy Forum and a professor of law at Columbia University and UCLA, who wrote for us about the connection between the killings of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and what she called the stealth victimization of black bodies represented by the coronavirus with its disproportionate infection and death rates in black communities. She wrote her piece in mid-May before George Floyd's death and the Minneapolis demonstrations, in part to draw more attention to two deaths the country seemed to be ignoring. How much has changed, and how deeply do you think people are reckoning with what you called the unmattering of black lives? Well, I think we couldn't have possibly predicted that on the heels of the deaths of so many African Americans to COVID, there would be a moment of reckoning with the fact that the precarity of black life doesn't extend just to the decision to let black people die, but it embodies the decisions to actually kill them. You know, Breonna Taylor was killed at the beginning of of the crisis, March 13th. Mm. It took more than two months for anyone really to notice that this had happened. And I think had George Floyd's horrendous murder not captured the attention of the world, we still wouldn't be saying Breonna Taylor's name. So, you know, she is still an afterthought. The condition of this possibility that this black woman's name is being mentioned is because it comes in a trio of cases of black people being killed by anti-black racist violence. The death of Ahmaud Arbery garnered so much attention, partly because it did play out old lynching narratives. We were able to see the filming of a lynching, like in real time. It's not a grainy photograph from the past. We actually see it happening. So that exceptional way in which black life is taken has got to sit at the same time with the fact that on that day, hundreds of black people died from COVID. And every day since, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of people disproportionately black are dying of COVID. The case of Breonna Taylor seems like one that really connects both of those things that you're talking about so neatly because she's a victim of a horrendous incident of police violence. But also she was an EMT working on the front lines, helping people up to the day she died in this awful pandemic. Um, And I feel like that side of her story actually hasn't been written about much at all, apart from in your piece. Yeah, it's it's surprising to me, in fact, because, you know, at the time she was killed and especially in the weeks after, one of the few things that frontline essential workers were given uh, as opposed to what they needed, which was, you know, um, P.E., uh, was the, was the label of heroes, right? So one would think that learning about the death of an EMT, 
an innocent person who was killed in the few hours that she had to rest in the middle of this pandemic, it was a narrative that could write itself. So it raises the question, why didn't this narrative write itself? And I would say that a significant dimension of it is it was a police action. It was associated with the war on drugs. It happened to a black woman. And all of those things appear as features that can be easily sort of written off. We have sort of pre-existing narratives of who our heroes are, what they look like, what those stories sound like, who the villains are. And police killing of black women just doesn't fit in those traditional narratives. So people don't know what to do with it. And when they don't know what to do with it, they don't report it. Mm -hmm. And of course, you mentioned that it was associated with the war on drugs, but no drugs were found in Breonna Taylor's apartment. And it was a, a complete mistake that police were ever sent there. No drugs in her apartment. It was a botched raid. But it also draws attention to the background that law actually helps to facilitate. So this was a no-knock warrant, meaning that police can just barge into your home on a simple claim that it's reasonable. It's, it's a very, it's a low standard, quite frankly. So it draws attention to what often is just in the background. This is the constitutionalization of anti-Black policing. There is no real protection against precisely this kind of action. One thing you write about in your piece is the way that when these cases are covered in the media, people try to shift the blame onto the victim because they can't understand how that could happen. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking yesterday with Gina Best. She's the mother of India Kager. India Kager, for your listeners who don't know, was a young black woman who was killed by Virginia Beach police who trailed her and the father of her child as they were visiting relatives to introduce the baby to his relatives. He was, there, there was some kind of informant tip that he was coming to town to do something. So they initiated, he was under surveillance. So they knew that she was in the car and they knew that the four-month-old baby was there. But nonetheless, they initiated a flashbang, you know, SWAT team involving 16 officers attempt to arrest him and they ended up shooting more than 50 rounds into the car, you know, killing her, killing him and injuring the baby. And when I asked her, what was the reaction? Did she immediately get support of people in Virginia Beach and elsewhere? And she said, absolutely not. And part of the reason, she said, is that when black women are killed, there is more of a sense that she got herself killed. You know, the agency rests in her decisions. Well, what decisions? Well, her decision to be in a car with somebody who was of interest to the police, her decision to have a relationship or uh, have him father a child. And as she was talking about it, it reminded me of rape culture. It reminded me of the way that no matter what the circumstances are, there is a reflexive tendency on the part of people who have to confront 
listening to a story about a black woman being or any woman being sexually abused that makes them want to search for some moment that they themselves could have done something different to take them out of harm's way. So as I was listening to some of the things that people say to mothers of women killed by the police, I kept thinking, well, the fact that this seems so exceptional is what makes people want to rest the responsibility for this death on the person because they don't want to deal with the fact that actually my life is in jeopardy. I could lose my life when I go to sleep one night or when I pull into a 7-Eleven in a car with a man that the police have a grudge against. I could lose my life. Mm-hmm. So would it be right to say it's because the level of danger is so high, it's kind of intolerable to, to live with it? I think it's definitely denial as a defense mechanism. And I also think with respect to women, it's patriarchy. For our mothers, there are two losses, the loss of the daughter and then the loss of the significance of the loss. When no one says their name uh, or when they go to the women's march and they don't hear their daughter's names mentioned, but they hear the names of men mentioned, there's a loss of that loss. When women are killed, when women bear the significant consequences of over-policing, we don't have a space for where that exists within our narratives of what anti-Black policing looks like. The term that's used in the piece to describe that sense of the loss of a loss is the unmattering of Black lives, Mm -hmm. which seems to get at, at like a very complex process of declaring that Black lives matter and then having to keep arguing for it. You know, that gap between something happening and then your neighbors actually recognizing the police did it. Yeah. And I, I frame Black Lives Matter as aspirational, as opening up the contradiction between what should be completely and utterly uncontroversial and what the material realities of Black precarity really are. Right. We don't have to fight Mm -hmm. about whether white lives matter. It's the foundational principle of American society. What is also the foundational principle is that black life is both essential and expendable. That's been the logic from the very beginning. Black life, the actual forced production of black life. So black life was brought about by the institutionalized sexual abuse of black women to create this labor force. So there was the essential dimension of black life and there was also the expendable dimension. It could be snuffed out when security required it. It could be criminalized when the desire for freedom was framed as theft and you could be punished for stealing yourself. So these logics of the unmattering of black life were grounded in the very foundation of the republic and never significantly expunged. That that contradiction is still what we're seeing today. I think we saw a very amazing illustration of exactly what you're talking about over the last month or so because there was a round of protests about reopening, quote-unquote, before George Floyd, in which heavily armed white men faced essentially no police resistance whatsoever, and the cops were not so peaceful when the protest was about their own actions. Just a short, short time later. You know, we we often don't get these historical illustrations of the disparity 
between the way black protest and and black self-defense is framed as opposed to white. So I remember at the time, the conversation that many of us were having was, can you imagine if it was black people marching into the Capitol completely armed, yelling into the faces without masks? of law enforcement and law enforcement standing down, just taking it. Mm -hmm. Well, two weeks later, it was like (laughs) the universe said, you know what, we're going to give them this. We're going to show the truth of what people have been saying. Mm -hmm. So what have we seen people engaging in lawful activity of protest being shot at? Mm -hmm. We see the president of the United States firing tear gas into the public in order to do basically a photo op. Mm -hmm. You know, so much is here that underscores the fact that black rights and white rights are just different. Mm. One more thing I wanted to ask you was, um, obviously one of the demands that we've seen from the protesters is defund the police. But earlier when you were talking about Breonna Taylor's death, you actually talked about the constitutional basis for policing. And I would love to hear more from you about that. Well, it's a fascinating question. And one of those realities is the constitutional backdrop that allows for police basically to make mistakes like they did in Breonna Taylor's case and never pay the penalty. They don't even have to pay the penalty in terms of the exclusionary rule. So if they go in on a mistaken warrant or tell lies they still can use any evidence that they collect in that mistaken raid. So there really are no disincentives for them to continue to do this kind of terrorizing of innocent people. And on top of that, the ability to actually sue and prevent or prohibit some of these practices has been dramatically reduced by Supreme Court rulings. The chokehold in Los Angeles during one period of time was responsible for killing over 16 people. Mm -hmm. And the police chief out here, Daryl Gates, basically defended the actions by saying that black people had a different anatomy than ordinary people. And that was probably the reason why they were dying disproportionately. There was an effort um, on the part of Leon Lyons, who was trying to sue because it had happened to him in an ordinary traffic stop. And the Supreme Court said he didn't have standing to actually seek an injunction against this behavior. So the Supreme Court is silently in the background creating the rules that allow police to do this, limiting the consequences of that, and in turn placing basically undue power in the hands of unions that create rules that make it almost impossible to hold people accountable for this. So it's just important to recognize in thinking about reforms that some of that attention and energy must be placed on the constitution of our courts. And we cannot go into this next election without talking about the absolute role of the courts in creating the conditions for the precarity of black life. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. We're joined now by Ositu Anevu, a staff writer at the magazine who wrote for us at the end of May about civil violence and public opinion and politics. 
A lot of people in our line of work have preconceived notions about the relationships between those three things. Your piece seems to suggest some humility is in order. Well, I always try to show humility myself personally and recommend it to other people. But, you know, <laughs> this was, I guess, the early days of all this, when we really didn't know what public opinion was actually going to shake out to be. We just sort of had to operate on the basis of what each of us sort of respectively knew about history. For a lot of people in the press, that was hearkening back to 1968 and the backlash that emerged as a consequence of the riots that happened after King's assassination. And I think for those people, like nothing else has happened in American politics that <laughs> for them might have seemed instructive. In 1992, there were obviously riots in L.A. after the Rodney King beating. Um, there was a paper published not too long ago, the American Political Science Review, I believe, where they took a look at what the impact of those riots were politically. And they found that whatever impact they might have had on a national level, locally, it seems likely that the riots actually boosted voter registration and also boosted support for liberal ballot initiatives in the years mm -hmm. afterwards. Which is not to say that, like, Riots are always going to be politically beneficial, but like there is there's a level of nuance here that I think people should understand. It's not 1968 anymore. And that was obvious after Ferguson as well. We've seen this huge shift in public opinion on issues of racial inequality, on criminal justice specifically. And that's despite the fact that the beginnings of the Ferguson protests looked a lot like the beginnings of the Minneapolis protests. Like there mm -hmm. were buildings being burned down. There was vandalism. There was this talk about outside agitators. But in the public memory, as time went on, the thing that really stuck was the police overreacted. So now that it's been a couple of weeks of protests, and now that we've had public opinion polling from reputable pollsters, we can say pretty conclusively the people who said that this was like 1968 are just wrong. Right. Like the public overwhelmingly <laughs> supports these protests. I saw this poll today that the Washington Post published. They found that even amongst people who believe that the protests have been mostly violent, 53% within that category still supported them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that same poll. The protests have not been mostly violent. They've been overwhelmingly right. peaceful. But even amongst people who have that idea of what's been going on, there's still a sense that this was motivated by a legitimate grievance. And I mean, that completely scrambles our politics, doesn't Because as you say, we're still in this post-1968 era where everything is defined in terms of a white backlash. And, you know, I, let's assume that these are people watching these, these things on TV where they're getting a distorted, perhaps more violent view of it to begin with. And they can still yeah. come away from that saying they support it. I mean, that, that upends what should theoretically be politically possible. I think that's true. You know, it should be emboldening to progressive activists. We're in the middle of this debate now about uh, abolishing the police or defunding the police as a political slogan. Maybe that causes uh, a backlash of some kind. But that said, the idea that like if you put forward a, a sort of radical proposition now from the left in American politics, that's something that's going to end up costing you big time when elections come around. I think that whole framework has been upended, not just by what we've seen already with these protests, but the past couple of years in American politics. We had this similar discourse around abolishing ICE mm -hmm. and that part of immigration discourse before the midterms. Democrats swept the suburbs anyway. Republicans, I believe, haven't won the suburbs outright in the last three elections, or they haven't won a majority, I should say. Mm -hmm. Trump did beat Clinton, but very narrowly by a couple of points in the suburbs, which speaks to both demographic trends, the suburbs are becoming more diverse, um, liberal people are moving in, you know, but also like the Republican Party can no longer position itself as a kind of stable alternative to whatever. <laughs> like the Republican Party itself is now a kind of scary thing that a lot of suburban voters are apprehensive about. Mm -hmm. So there, there are ways in which we can see the basic 
mechanisms of political backlash changing, which isn't to say that white backlash isn't a real thing in our politics anymore, but it's become this kind of more complicated dynamic where you, you can't just point to a demand being made by the left and say, this is going to destroy you. You've been writing about protest for a while. And at the end of last year, at the end of last decade, in fact, you wrote the piece um, about the rise of the permanent protest. Your argument in that piece was this decade saw so many protests that there's a tendency to kind of say, well, protest achieves nothing. Mm -hmm. And you actually push back against that idea. We've seen protests already, as I was saying just now with Ferguson, create massive shifts in public consciousness on a variety of issues. Criminal justice reform would probably be the biggest one of them. Fight for 15, you know, this movement of fast food workers, other service workers in the past decade that was successful enough that, you know, $15 minimum wage is now just a standard part of the Democratic agenda. The House, I think, passed a $15 minimum wage bill. So there have been protests that have been successful in sort of broadening public consciousness but there have also been protests that have been pretty successful in actually making policy progress. And I think that these protests have already done the latter. I mean, the Minneapolis City Council is now saying that they want to disband or, or dismantle their existing police force. What that actually looks like when it's all said and done, I don't really know. But that is already a, a huge policy concession. One other aspect of this I think is interesting and I know that you've thought about a lot, is the interplay between local politics and national politics. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you think of the fact that the protests are a nationwide phenomenon, and in fact, global phenomenon, mm -hmm. but their demands are focused not on the president. They're focused mostly on local officials and local police departments. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of the reasons why you can't just look at demands like defund the police and say, well, this sort of should be evaluated on, on what kind of impact it's going to have on the 2020 presidential election alone. Like this is, mm -hmm. to a large extent, a local policy issue and, and not just a local policy issue, but a local policy issue that's going to play out in cities that are predominantly democratic, that are run by democratic officials. And so there's already amount of pressure that comes from the fact that it's, it's not activists who have to push people who aren't already invested in criminal justice issues to care about them. It's, it's, it's activists are pressing people who already make a show of caring about criminal justice issues and who want their constituents to believe that they care, now having to respond to this set of demands mm -hmm. that are coming from the community. That's it, a threat to, I think, a lot of democratic policymakers and officials and something that's going to lead to some concrete change. I think it has been alternately aggravating and hilarious to see some parts of the Twitter discourse treat defund the police as if a, a liberal think tank came up with it. Like yeah. when they talk about its efficacy and they're like, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is never going to win. Like, I can't believe you guys got your best think tankers together and came up with defund the police. That's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah, never going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. like, meanwhile, as you said, we don't know what this is going to look like, but like Minneapolis already was like, okay. <laughs> like Minneapolis right. was already like, yes. <laughs> right. On, on a local level, I think this is going to be potent. We're already seeing as a consequence of coronavirus, a lot of localities having to make decisions about where they're going to have to spend their money. And so they have this new pressure now that, that say that, you know, you have to take at least some chunk of whatever this is going to cost us out of these police departments. It is refreshing to have a political demand that just does not depend at all on action by Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> yeah. That's actually yeah. one, of my, one, of, like, yeah. one of the heartening things about this moment is that when I, I saw people were trying to like get Joe Biden to, to mm -hmm. take a position on it, I'm like, Joe Biden's position just doesn't matter one way or another. Right. And I think that people in the streets understand that, right? Like, I don't think that, that 
Black Lives Matter activists are sort of going around saying, well, we think that we're going to get Joe Biden to say we should abolish <laughs> the police. But like, there's, there's an understanding that politics exists beyond presidential campaign. Politics exists on multiple levels of engagement. And I think it's a strength of these kind of distributed movements where it's like a national thing, but also like specific activists in specific regions are using stories that they are familiar with and instances that they're familiar with to add on to the national conversation in sort of like locality specific way. I think that a lot of what you can do on the national level is prevent things from getting worse. So uh, <laughs> when Bernie Sanders says that we need to sort of uh, make sure the police are being well-funded and, and using money to attract new talent like that's you can say no to that and say no like that's not what we need <laughs> mm -hmm. but ultimately i think that a lot of what we can do is going to be people engaging with local leaders to fundamentally restructure these departments online i really loved from the piece was this is how public memory tends to work we record by taping over yeah the piece was sort of inspired by this kind of goldfish brain that you see all across political analysis Nothing that happened more than a year ago seems to stick in any kind of real way. And so it's something you see all over the place, not just with this issue. The piece I wrote just after this was about what happened in front of St. John's Church when Trump wanted to do the photo op that cleared people out of Lafayette Square. And people were like, well, this is like the lowest point of the Trump presidency. And certainly now Republicans will have to comment on this and, and take a stand. And people were not, not Republicans about it. And they were like, oh, I... You know, the same, the same kind of equivocation <laughs> in Hemingway Hall do all the time. But, like, I shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. Mm -hmm. This is a person who's been in public life for the center of American politics for five years now. We've had time to examine what happens when he does bad stuff. And it's the same thing over and over and over again. We have Republicans making excuses. I don't really know what to credit to it, but I, I have a suspicion that one of the reasons why it's, it's so easy to forget is that if you remember a lot and you have this sort of running backlog of everything that's happened to us in American politics for the past 10 or 20 years, it's hard not to become radicalized. You become more able to sort of process the rage that a lot of people are feeling. Mm -hmm. And our political media is not designed to process rage or articulate rage in any real way. So I guess that leads to the question, what do calls for healing really mean? I mean, they're calls to sort of abandon that rage, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> There are calls to, for the public to be as blasé and ambivalent about radically reforming this country as the people who are running it. Because if people are angry, it, it means you have to do something. <laughs> people don't want to do anything. Because doing stuff is really hard and it'll upset donors and blah, blah, blah. Like, but I ultimately think that like we're reaching a point where, you know, maybe this is naive of me, but those, those calls for healing aren't going to be tenable even offer anymore. I think we're headed for a lot of, I don't know, upheaval, political violence, whatever you want to call it, just as a consequence of the different crises that are encroaching upon us. And, you know, I think people who sort of reflexively make these appeals to unity and healing are going to find themselves addressing a public that doesn't really believe in it anymore, and they shouldn't. Mm. Well, on that uplifting note, <laughs> thank you for coming back on yeah thanks for having me yeah thanks for talking to us about this our last guest on the show today is Patrick Blanchfield who wrote about a phenomenon he calls cop talk the euphemisms used in official police statements and in news reporting that mask the reality of the actions of police Patrick, thanks for coming on. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay, so what is Cop Talk? So uh, I think a good way to define what Cop Talk is, is as a whole grammar and vocabulary for laundering violence, by which I mean that there's a sort of perennial philosophical problem where it's like, how much does language shape thought and how much is thought reflected in language? But it definitely does seem that when you deal with like the language of police reports and and the language of how police are reported on by the media when there's a lot of traffic between those two, you do get the sense that language is being used one way or another to mask events and also, if not to shape thought, then to prevent people from thinking about certain things. So, like, yeah, the the idea of, like, an officer-involved shooting, which is a very strange locution, is probably the prime example of what cops Mm -hmm. talk is. Right, and we're so used to that that phrase that people don't think about it. If you just heard that for the first time, you would assume an officer-involved shooting meant that the officer was the person who was shot. Not that they were involved in doing the shooting. It reads like a translation from another language that's being done poorly to highlight how that language is like an exotic system of thought. No, it just means a cop shot somebody, right? There, a gun went off, somebody got shot, almost always it's a cop doing the shooting. Why can't we say that? And that's a good question. And it's an interesting one because if you think of cop talk, you think of the language of police reports or how a cop would excuse their behavior when giving a statement. But that's an example of one that the media voluntarily use. I'm pretty sure it started with the LAPD PR department. And they got the press to voluntarily use a phrase that obscures what happened. How do you think they managed to do that? Part of what I feel there is is a contributing causal factor is the fact that, like, I I don't do a lot of, like, beat reporting directly very much, but, like, reporters have limited periods of time. And if you're getting concisely updates on what happens in a chaotic situation, like, there is a naive impulse to trust the authorities on it. And so that gets reduplicated in reports and in media reports as well. So officer-involved shooting is one example of this that clearly falls into the category of euphemism. What are some other examples? The language of resistance comes up a lot, like resisting arrest, Mm. right? It's very hard to, like, speak in cop talk because you have to be, like, abstracted from stuff. But, like, conflicts arising, right? A weapon is discharged. Resistance happens. There's some sort of friction that sort of, like, puffs into existence in this ephemeral way on the horizon. It's, it's always nested, too, particularly when stuff gets more granular and you look in the reports. It's like a police officer says that there were reports from other police that, and, of course, this always gets condensed further and further once you're in the media reportage. One of the points I think you make in your piece is that this evolved in part as the response to requiring that police justify their actions. Uh, In in other words, it's a response to police reform attempts. And the example you point to that I I thought really made that clear were these Chicago use of force reports where they would, in, in sort of weird, granular, but bloodless language, they would be like a knee was applied to the chest of the perpetrator or something like that. The Chicago example, I think, is from 2017, and, and it's a Justice Department investigation into, like, they use police mm-hmm. reports. Once you start trying to be rigorous about when this starts in terms of a timeline, you find yourself pushing it back decade after decade after decade, right? Since at least the 1890s, there's been a very strong move in policing to, to professionalize, mm-hmm. right? 
And I think this is particularly relevant now, like given like all this talk about reformism, right? There is always, for at least a century and a half now, there's been a discernible refrain of let's professionalize police, let's reform them. And part of how, you know, uh, you know you're dealing with a profession, whether it be police or, or anyone else, is that they have their own argo or language. And so a lot of the, the precision of police reports, the, the, the language of, of suspects or of lineups or of squad cars or of all this paramilitary stuff calling officers, captains, corporals, et cetera, like this comes from that period. But like it's eternally recurring from then onwards. You have these reports that they're very granular, very tactical. The subject resisted and certain strikes were applied. And so well, they never say where on the body, right? But mm. then if you look what the Chicago Police Department is doing in its black site, like they're waterboarding people. They, they were waterboarding people in the 1890s too, right? The language just papers over stuff that keeps on happening the same way. What they have been trained to do almost is to create uh, legal justifications with their words as they're performing violence. Yes. But we know those are not even necessarily really meant to convince anyone because we also know that they're also, they also just straight up lie even when, for example, they're caught on tape. And you, you mentioned the sort of institutionalized nature of their lying uh, in the in the phenomenon of test lying, at some point in investigating the NYPD, in particular, it became very clear that police are perjuring themselves constantly to get the convictions that they want or to cover their ass on the stand, and they did it so frequently that they would that they came up with their own word for it, which is test lying, right? It's a nice little calc of testify and lie, and you just get up on the stand and you'll yeah, yeah of course there was a drop gun or no, my partner wasn't slamming the guy's face into a hood while yelling, stopping, resisting. It's totally fine, and they swear to this, and you know it's perjury, but it works. And so that came from an investigation in 1994. There was a New York Times story a year, maybe two years ago, that was like reported as if, and not to insult the story because it was actually very, very well reported, but it still was reported as if it was brand new news that like cops have an epidemic of lying all of the time. <laughs> like we, we continually relearn this seemingly very simple lesson. The fact that they coined a term for internal use about that is remarkable, right? Because you have cop talk, which is this external, outward-facing, very bland, professionalized, impersonal language, which is meant to sort of deflect attention from what the police do and normalize it. But then you have this very, like, florid internal language, which is sort of celebrating all the rule-breaking, um, testifying. It, that's not just a practice that's tolerated. That's one that is sort of revered, right? If you have a word for it like that, that is a pun. And one thing I was very interested in was the way that several acronyms that the police use had emerged from that internal language that was very fast and loose yeah. and kind of delighting in the rule breaking and in some of the aggression towards the community, which were then retooled in this more professional seeming cop talk. Yeah, like the genealogy of some of these terms, like SWAT, right, which may be the most prominent acronym, like in the entire like police lexicon. Initially, like Daryl F. Gates, who was a, a straight up monster, um, he coined the phrase SWAT, which he wanted to mean special weapons attack teams. Uh, and his boss was like, well, that's a little bit much. And so it became special weapons and tactics, which is, you know, nicely, pleasantly smoothed out. Right. In order to preserve their legitimacy, they have to act professionally. But but we know that they sort of delight in the thin blue line Punisher logo stuff. And the fact that those two things are completely contradictory never really seems to enter into their own interpretation of, of <laughs> why people might not take them seriously. One question I have is how effective that 
mode or register of language has been in convincing the public up to the last few years. Because journalists, for the most part, news reporters, have adopted this language largely uncritically. And that has to shape the way that people had been thinking about the police. Yeah. I think that the past two decades have been really exemplary in that, particularly since 9-11, where there's been a broader militarization of culture and a real adoption of a whole suite of sort of like badass terms. Just it feels more in your face. And I feel like if what we're witnessing now may be an awareness of, of the real gap between all this very, very precise acronym-based language and all these technical slash tactical turns of phrase and just like the brute reality of what is happening. The use of language by police departments has seemed to rely on the written word being the main forum for discussion of police behavior, largely newspaper reporting over the last several decades. And yet... I think most people now are learning about the police through video, particularly viral video of incidents of brutality. The the disjunction is a lot clearer when that's what you're seeing. And then the language, which already doesn't make sense, is what you're being presented with. I I hope so. Like, I don't I I don't know. Like I I was watching some of the first round of protests in that first week where you'd have a bunch of talking heads sitting in a studio and and they'd be watching the protest. And occasionally you'd have people who were reporting from the scene with the with the with the mic and camera setup will be like they just opened fire on peaceful protesters. But it was very, very weird to watch talking heads safely in the studio transition mid-beat from talking about the same people on camera as peaceful protesters to talking about outside agitators, like in the frame. And it was like the moment the police gassed them and people started running around, then they became agitators, they became looters, they became disorderly. In the Bronx the other weekend when the cops just sort of went in and started bashing people with billy clubs and arresting legal aid lawyers, and then the commissioner, Commissioner Shea, comes out to talk about it to the press the next day. And, and he said that the NYPD's plan was, quote, executed nearly flawlessly. He described it as like a, it was a surgical, tactical mission. that They went in, they had a mission, they extracted exactly the people they were looking for. When, like, we could see, they encircled a group of people and just started beating them with billy clubs and arresting ones they didn't like. Like, that's, that seems to be, like, exactly the divide here. Mm-hmm. You also write a lot about guns and gun culture and the justifications that I put forward for gun culture. And that intersects with a large portion of the police violence um, that we've seen and also that the protesters are responding to. But also what we've seen in the protests is a lot of hand-to-hand physical violence. And I'm wondering how much of the language you think comes out of sort of a lot of the obfuscations that surround people using guns and how much of it stems separately from broader justifications for the police to use any kind of force they want. Yeah. There's some way in which, like, language is always trailing violence in these episodes, right? So when police officers are saying, well, I delivered a series of weapon-disabling movements or, like, kinetic strikes, like, you you look at the video and they're just wailing on someone with a stick. You're like, I don't understand how this thing stack up. But, like, one thing that's striking me here is the discourse of, like, de-escalation but also, like, non-lethal interventions when very clearly a lot of what actually is non-lethal absolutely can kill and does... People talk about tear gas. Tear gas sounds great. It just makes you cry, right? It's just tears. 
The choice of the language of tear gas is deliberately chosen by marketers and police officers and military consultants in the 1920s, mm. specifically because it downplays the actual violence of the stuff, right? Like they're, they're delivering non-lethal munitions at crowds. Well, no, they're firing canisters with the intent of taking people's eyes out. And they're saying that sometimes. Or that, like rubber bullets, the, the rubber in rubber bullets is marketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think it sounds like Nerf guns, right? When in fact, no, you can very easily kill people. If you look at the earliest marketing efforts for these non-lethal technologies and specifically tear gas, the way it's all being sold by American police and to American police and military is that what it does is it transforms peaceful protesters into laughable mobs, Hmm. right? So the idea here is they will become disorderly and therefore illegitimate. Hmm. Mm. So if you imagine you have, you have a rank of people walking very smoothly and you, the police are very clear. We can't shoot them. We can't just murder them. That would look terrible. But if we make them run around and go crazy, well, then they were always a riot waiting to happen. Mm. And they're the ones standing there with the uniforms and they're the ones writing the reports. So the violence, which they themselves escalated or even created, somehow actually becomes a sign of their own legitimacy when in fact it's just an effect of their power. What do you think about the debate right now, the language between defunding the police and some of the other uh, reformist messages. It's hard not to feel like time's a flat circle sometimes with this stuff. Like, if you go back 20, 30 years, everyone's like, community policing? Who doesn't love community, right? Well, what does that mean? That means counterinsurgency policing. Professionalism, who doesn't want professional police? Well, that means giving them, like, they can call each other military titles when they do the black site off the books. Currently, a lot of this reformist language, a lot of this professionalism language, just seems like, again, like, let's give them some new HR terms, do some trainings, throw some consultants some bucks, so that, you know, people will stop paying attention, or at least the right people will stop paying attention until we can do this all again a few years later. And what I like about the defunding language as an antidote to that is it really cuts the bone of what these institutions run on, which is money. Mm-hmm. Like, if there's any one thing that people understand in our austerity moment, it's defunding, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if we take the money from them, like, what are they supposed to say? Well, no, actually, we went, we, we, by defunding, we meant more trainings and more guns. Like, no, no, just take their money. It's very simple and clear. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Patrick. Thanks. You all stay safe out there. This is the politics of everything. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please take advantage of the New Republic's exclusive summertime offer. Get unlimited access to newrepublic.com for three months for just $5. Available for a limited time at tnr.com slash special offer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.